thank you everyone for joining. Uh, there are going to be four parts to today's session. Uh, first, we'll take a look at the lay of the land uh, in financial markets uh, for corporate. Uh, then I'll turn to some near-term concerns, including uh, the Fed tapering, uh, the rapidly approaching debt ceiling, and we'll discuss you know, some metrics that uh, are useful in, in assessing the amount of angst in financial markets, uh, and one of them is uh, the uh, EBS. And then I'll finish by discussing the economic and financial implications of breaching the debt ceiling. Uh, don't worry, uh, uh, I'll still find a way to end on a, on a positive note after uh, going through that Armageddon scenario. Before diving in, uh, I want to give you the key takeaway, uh, and that is the best times are behind us. Uh, interest rates are set to rise, uh, growth in the economy has peaked, corporate and uh, corporate profits, earnings growth is going to moderate, and defaults are going to rise, albeit from very low levels. Uh, even though these times are uh, these good times are behind us, conditions are going to still remain very favorable as the scarring from uh, the pandemic recession appears to be very limited, uh, and there's still uh, we're still in the early stages of what hopefully will be a long uh, economic expansion. So let's start with part one, the lay of the land. There's a growing concern about the health of uh, American corporates. Uh, uh, corporate bond issuance last year was very, very robust. It's very strong this year. Uh, uh, corporate leverage is rising. And all this is okay in an environment with low interest rates, and this is why you know, one section of today's conversation is going to be about the prospect of Fed tapering and avoiding another taper tantrum because uh, as interest rates rise, you know, uh, that's going to put some pressure on uh, corporations to uh, finance the, the, the amount of debt that they've taken out over the last uh, couple of years. But there's plenty of reason for optimism, and that's what's being shown in the first chart. Uh, the stock market has rallied significantly since you know, its post or its pandemic lows, uh, but along with that, Corporate profits have also surged, uh, and they've been much stronger than what we've seen uh, overall with uh, nominal GDP. Uh, and corporate profit margins remain very wide, uh, and that's uh, encouraging given that the, we've had, we're in the midst of a period of transitory inflation. Uh, consumer prices, producer prices, import prices have all accelerated quite noticeably uh, since the start of this year, but with corporate profit margins wide, Companies can digest some of those uh, higher input costs uh, while passing some on to uh, you and I. Uh, and the other thing with corporate profits being uh, as strong as they are uh, and interest rates still uh, at historic lows, uh, that kind of justifies the valuations that you're seeing in the stock market, uh, which kind of you know, hopefully isolates us from uh, a near-term correction. Now, a correction will occur at some point, on average, you know, a 10% decline in the stock market occurs you know, once every two years. That's on average since the 1970s. Uh, and if you see what's going on in equity markets recently, you know, the volatility has picked up. Uh, and a lot of that is attributed to monetary policy, uh, not just by the Federal Reserve, but also internationally. Some uh, developed central banks are turning a little bit more hawkish. Uh, and that's, you know, leading markets to start to price in a little bit more aggressive tightening cycle among uh, central banks. Uh, and then there's also the debt ceiling. But hopefully once we're on the si other side of the debt ceiling, with an economy that we, we forecast to grow you know, uh, roughly 6% this year, 4% next year, uh, and interest rates that are going to only steadily rise, that's digestible for financial markets. 
Uh, therefore, you know, we anticipate you know, still solid corporate earnings growth, uh, profit growth of 5% next year. Uh, and that should keep financial market conditions very favorable for uh, the broader economy and also uh, kind of uh, ease or limit the amount of credit risk or uh, credit concerns in uh, among investors. This recession was uh, unlike any that we've seen before. Uh, it was the deepest recession on record, but also the shortest. Uh, and that is a very unique combination. Uh, we avoided the depression. Uh, we, uh, there's the three Ds of the depression. Uh, there's the debt, which this recession uh, met. Uh, there's the uh, deflation aspect, which didn't occur. Uh, and duration. Uh, this was a very short recession, and uh, it helped uh, the short nature along with the very aggressive policy response limit the impact on uh, uh, defaults, uh, delinquencies. Uh, you can see that in this chart here, uh, there was uh, a disproportionate effect of the recession on investment grade and high yield. You can see the number of downgrades, is, which is the blue bar, uh, jumped in 2020. But if you, you have to squint to see uh, you know, an increase in uh, investment grade defaults. Now, downgrades did increase, but nowhere near what we saw um, during the financial crisis, uh, there was an increase in high yield defaults. But if you fast forward to this year, uh, all these metrics have improved quite noticeably. Uh, the number of downgrades is still less than the number of uh, uh, up, uh, upgrades for high yield investment grade. Uh, the number of defaults for investment grade and high yield have both come down. Uh, and this is kind of the sweet spot of this, this credit cycle. Uh, going forward, uh, and this is what we'll start to see in the EDF data over the next 12 to 18 months is that with a steady increase in interest rates, there's some slowing in the uh, economic activity, uh, you know, a little bit tighter financial market conditions because they've been very, very loose uh, over the last uh, year, year and a half. Uh, conditions are going to get a little tougher. Uh, it doesn't mean that corporate bond issuance is going to fall off a cliff. It doesn't mean we're going to see uh, significant increases in the number of investment grade or high yield uh, defaults. Uh, we're just going to be on the other side of the sweet spot, and conditions will get a little bit more uh, challenging, but nothing that you would uh, raise a red flag. So on the next slide, uh, investors' perception of credit risk remains, you know, uh, it's very good. There's uh, not a lot of concern about credit risk. And you can see that in the uh, high-yield corporate bond spread, which is the blue line on the left-hand scale. Uh, and it, it's very tight from a historical perspective. On average, the high-yield corporate bond spread uh, averages about 500 basis points. Uh, you know, we're right around 300 basis points uh, currently. Uh, in the last you know, week or so, there are some concerns about uh, a Chinese uh, developer uh, that you know, rattles financial markets, but you have to squint to see the impact on uh, U.S. high-yield corporate bond stress, which I think is encouraging that you know, this is being viewed more as uh, an isolated event than something that's more uh, systematic or uh, uh, could trigger some contagion effects. Uh, what's keeping high-yield corporate bond spreads very tight, uh, one is very low uh, volatility in the stock market. Now, that, of course, that's notwithstanding you know, the last week, uh, week or so. 
uh, volatility measured by the VIX is you know, right around its historical average, uh, and that typically coincides with a very tight uh, high-yield corporate bond spread. Uh, the other factor that is helping uh, keep corporate bond spreads high-yield uh, very tight, uh, tighter than what we've seen historically, are rising energy prices. And there's a pretty strong correlation, and there's a causal relationship between changes in uh, global energy prices and high-yield corporate bond spreads. Uh, so given this backdrop, these two key uh, drivers, uh, as long as volatility remains well-behaved, which it should once, you know, we're on the other side of the step ceiling, uh, and given our forecast for very strong uh, you know, global GDP growth this year and next year, and the uh, balance between supply and demand uh, favoring demand for oil, uh, we expect a steady increase in uh, global oil prices through the rest of this year and into next. Therefore, high-yield corporate bond spreads should remain tight uh, in the near term. Uh, once we get into the second half of next year, we'll start to see high-yield corporate bond spreads begin to rise, uh, and that's going to coincide with you know, just you know, broader financial market conditions. We're going to have the 10-year Treasury yield steadily rising. Uh, there's going to be more hints by the Federal Reserve that it's getting ready to raise the Fed fund rate for the, uh, for the first time. Uh, the other thing is we'll probably get an early indication that uh, high-yield corporate bond spreads are going to start to increase by looking at the uh, U.S. one-year uh, EDF. And the EDF is, I should have, I apologize, I should have uh, laid this out earlier. The EDF is uh, estimated default frequency. Uh, it's a very timely, it's a real-time measure of uh, market risk, business risk among corporates, uh, and investors' assessment of credit risk. Uh, and this is... Uh, tracks the high-yield corporate bond spread pretty well. And you can see that you know, both are telling a very similar story. Uh, the uh, one-year uh, EDF is as low as the financial crisis, the same with high-yield corporate bond spreads. But uh, I will watch to see if the one-year EDF starts to tick higher, then that would you know, kind of foreshadow that we may be in the midst of uh, some normalization in the high-yield corporate bond market. Uh, but Given the backdrop of low interest rates, low volatility, uh, a boatload of uh, liquidity in the market, I, I think corporate bond spreads will remain uh, very tight, along with uh, a low uh, uh, U.S. corporate EDF uh, for, the, for the near term. Now, one thing I want to keep in mind, uh, please kind of keep this chart in the back of your mind, because uh, as we go forward and towards the end of the presentation, when we go through this Farmageddon scenario where the debt ceiling is breached, uh, I'm going to uh, bring the chart back to just show you what uh, would occur to both the high-yield corporate bond spread and the one-year uh, EDF under that uh, significant stress scenario. All right, so Section 2, uh, and it's probably my favorite section, because uh, anytime I can talk about the Fed, uh, I'm a very happy uh, individual. Uh, the 10-year Treasury yield has risen recently. Uh, you know, we're closer to 1.2% not not that long ago, uh, several weeks ago. Uh, and last time I checked earlier today, we're right around 1.5%. Uh, and this isn't the start of a taper tantrum. Uh, I think the takeaway from this section is that markets are beginning to reassess their expected path for uh, interest rates. And the Tapering. Um, the uh, the Fed's going to avoid another taper tantrum. So the taper tantrum, to uh, refresh everyone's mind, occurred in uh, 2013 uh, when uh, 
Ben Bernanke, then Fed Chair, uh, hinted that uh, the Fed was going to start to reduce its balance sheet uh, during a uh, speech at Jackson Hole uh, in August. That kind of that really rattled financial markets because at the time, uh, market investors tied balance sheet policy with interest rate policy. Uh, so if the Fed was going to begin to taper soon, that meant higher interest rates are coming. Uh, and then you know, going forward over the next you know, couple of months, the 10-year treasury yield rose by roughly 100 basis points. Uh, and that's the so-called taper tantrum. And leading up to uh, this tapering process, there was still some concerns, some lingering concerns that you know, we could see another response similar to 2013, which caused financial market conditions to tighten. Uh, but if you look at go back and look at the high-yield corporate bond spread in the uh, U.S. EDF, they continue to improve. So the, that market thinks about Fed tapering and possible rate hikes. That really never led through into broader uh, 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 capital market conditions. And I think that's a good lesson to remember, uh, particularly given that the Fed, uh, and what I'm showing you here on this chart, is potential path for the Fed tapering of this $120 billion in uh, monthly assets. Uh, the green, blue, dark blue, and orange are uh, past it uh, were, I assume, pre-September FOMC meeting. Uh, and, you know, some past were, you know, if the Fed wanted to go slow and steady, if they want to be more aggressive. At the September meeting, we got a very clear indication of what the Fed plan is. Uh, now, the timing of when they start this is still a little bit unclear. Uh, but it's, uh, this tapering process is going to be uh, more aggressive than I think the market uh, anticipated. Uh, before the FOMC meeting, if you looked at the New York Fed survey of primary dealers, they were expecting $15 billion reduction in monthly asset purchases uh, per FOMC meeting. Now, the Fed plan is an eight-month tapering process. They want this wrapped up by roughly mid-next year. So that means $15 billion per month. You know, probably starting in December. Uh, if we get a very strong employment number, uh, a drop in the unemployment rate, stronger wage growth uh, is on Friday when we get the December data, then maybe a November tapering is uh, on the table. But as of now, I think the Fed's going to want to be cautious. Make sure we get through the debt ceiling. Uh, make sure you know, there's not uh, uh, any concerns uh, for a partial government shutdown in early December. Uh, and then I think the Fed will follow through with tapering uh, at the December um, meeting. But the key takeaway, no taper tantrum. Uh, Fed Chair Powell has divorced interest rate policy from balance sheet policy, and that has limited the increase in long-term rates given that, you know, the Fed has sent its advance notice that uh, the tapering is, is coming. So what's driving long-term rates higher? Uh, this chart decomposes the 10-year Treasury yield into its three main components. Uh, the red, uh, or excuse me, the green line is inflation expectations. Right? So this is you know, uh, long-term inflation expectations, market-based measures. The uh, blue line, uh, the dark blue line, is the, ex uh, the expected path of real short-term rates. So another way of interpreting this is you know, what's the expected path of the Fed subject rate, uh, adjusted for inflation. And then the light blue line is the term premium. And this is the extra compensation investors need to hold long-term rates uh, versus short-term rates. And what's driven uh, the 10-year treasury yield higher recently is an increase in the term premium. 
Uh, and that is where the Fed's multi-asset purchase, that's $120 billion in treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, that's the primary way it lowers long-term rates is by depressing the term premium. Now that the Fed has signaled that you know, they're going to start walking back some of these purchases and dialing it back, uh, you've seen the term premium start to creep higher. It's still negative, which historically is normal when uh, the Fed's doing quantitative easing. Uh, but it's it's climbing, and that's contributed to you know, roughly half of the increase in uh, the 10-year Treasury yield from this recent lows. The other thing that's driving it higher is uh, markets are reassessing their expectations of uh, the, uh, the path of the Fed funds rate, and you can see that pretty clear uh, in this slide. The dark blue line is the market-implied path for the Fed funds rate uh, out three years. Uh, uh, that was in January of this year. The uh, light blue line was the expectation before the last FOMC meeting, and the green line is the current market pricing. Uh, and you can see just over time, it's gradually, gradually uh, higher their expectations of the, the, the amount of tightening that will occur during the, the upcoming tightening cycle. Now, the, the timing of when this begins, the Fed's kind of divided, uh, you know, roughly half uh, FOMC uh, participants expect late 2022, the other half expects, you know, sometime in 2023. Our baseline forecast is for the first rate hike to occur in early uh, 2023. And we have a, a, a more aggressive tightening cycle than that uh, implied by market expectations. I think this is where we do get an adjustment in long-term rates more quickly than what's templed into our baseline, which is this just a steady, gradual increase in long-term rates over the next few years until they hit their equilibrium, uh, an equilibrium 10-year treasury yield by 3.75% to 4%. Uh, that uh, increase should be orderly unless the markets suddenly reassess you know, the path of the Fed funds rate. Uh, the uh, path implied by markets currently is pretty benign. Uh, as you can see, it's a little over 100 basis points in tightening over three years. Given the backdrop of very strong GDP growth, inflation that is uh, going to decelerate back towards the Fed's target, but it may stick around a little bit longer given the global supply constraints, uh, it's difficult to see how the Fed uh, could raise or normalize interest rates along the path of what markets are expecting. So in the end, we're likely going to continue to see markets ratchet up their expectations for the amount of tightening uh, that will occur this, uh, during this tightening cycle uh, and how aggressive the Fed will uh, will be. And this sudden readjustment of market expectations, that can feed into broader financial market conditions. Uh, you can look back at the periods where the, the market suddenly reassessed their expectations for Fed tightening, uh, either you know, tightening or suddenly expecting Fed rate cuts, and you can see the response in uh, corporate bond spreads in the EDF, uh, because uh, particularly for those industries that are interest rate sensitive. Uh, so overall, higher rates are coming, uh, but it's not the Fed funds rate is unlikely. The Fed's not going to really begin tightening monetary policy until uh, the job market is back to full employment, uh, and economists you know, they throw out all these different barometers of what best measures full employment. Uh, and uh, I think the best one is the prime age employment to population ratio. And an economy at full employment, that, that ratio is 80%. Currently, we're at 70%. Uh, and this 
this kind of moves like a uh, like a large iceberg. Uh, it doesn't improve you know, rapidly over a few months. It takes time, uh, but by this by this time or late next year, uh, we should have an economy that is very very close, if not at full employment. And that's the last criteria that the, the Fed can check off and uh, begin to uh, acknowledge that they're going to start tightening monetary policy. Uh, it's a that communication is very important around periods of changes in monetary policy, and that's why you see financial market conditions. You can see the EDF, you know, there, there can be some wiggles uh, around Fed communication uh, uh, with regards to uh, the tightening cycle. The other thing I wanted to point out is that the rise in the 10-year treasury yield is justified. Uh, what this chart is showing you is the actual 10-year treasury yield, which is the green line, and the model implied uh, 10-year treasury yield. The way I think of the model implied uh, 10-year treasury yield is its economic fair value. Uh, so we modeled the 10-year treasury yield using uh, five economic variables, uh, and we use it as kind of a measure of you know, is the 10-year treasury yield uh, above uh, what the economy, the economy is telling it to be or too low. And if you go back to the taper tension, you saw the, the 10-year treasury yield really jumped above uh, its, its equilibrium value. Currently, it's still a little bit below, so there's you know, some room for the 10-year treasury yield to rise. Currently, the equilibrium 10-year treasury yield is closer to uh, 1.56, or about six basis points below what uh, the, equi uh, the equilibrium model would uh, uh, imply. Uh, but as you can see, we don't have a 10-year treasury yield you know, way out of whack uh, with the economy's underlying fundamentals, uh, and that's another reason so far that I think we've avoided uh, the paper tantrum. So this section we're going to turn, uh, so it's mostly good news on the, the Fed front. Uh, you know, they're going to pull off uh, tapering without a tantrum. Uh, next year, you know, our focus will start to shift, and Mark's focus will start to shift towards the timing of the first rate hike. So there could be some you know, hiccups here and there. Uh, you could see some response in uh, corporate bond spreads in the EDF around uh, periods where you know, markets are kind of uncertain about the timing or the pace of, of tightening cycle. This section, we're going to focus more on something that is going to be a problem for the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, and we have to think about the unthinkable, and that's uh, the debt ceiling. Uh, and so everyone's on the same page. Uh, We've seen this movie before, and uh, I think why we haven't seen an enormous response in financial markets yet, uh, and we'll go through this dashboard uh, shortly, uh, is that they know how the movie ends, and that, you know, at the 11th hour, lawmakers will raise the debt ceiling, and that will uh, kind of remove this, this uh, enormous weight on financial markets. Uh, and what this chart's showing you is this uh, period where the debt uh, ceiling has been raised or suspended, and our working assumption is that the drop dead date, we calculate this based on monthly treasury statements, uh, is that the treasury will run out of cash right around October 18th. Now, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned that it could be a couple of days earlier, it could be you know, October 16th, so they're right in line with you know, what we're estimating, but that's going to be uh, the period that you know everyone has circled. Uh, and looking back, at least historically, you know, markets begin to uh, 
get a little bit more concerned the closer and closer we get to this drop dead date. Uh, and here, a good early warning indication is the, the one year, uh, US corporate EDF. Uh, right now that's sending a signal that no, no significant concern yet. Uh, but, you know, we're still, you know, 10, 10 days away. Uh, you know, leading up to the last few nasty debt ceiling fights, which were in 2011 and 2013, when we had divided government. Uh, the one year EDS did start to tick up, you know, a few days before, uh, the drop dead date. Eventually, of course, the debt ceiling was raised, and then you saw, uh, you know, a big side of relief in financial markets. The one year EDS fell back down. Uh, volatility in the stock market decreased, uh, and things kind of, you know, returned to normal, uh, in many of those instances, except for, uh, uh, when the European sovereign debt crisis began to, to hit. So, uh, I want to make sure we leave enough time for, uh, questions, but this slide is just kind of reinforcing what our drop dead date is and how we calculate it. We look at, uh, the projected treasury payments and tax receipts. Uh, you know, if, uh, this drop that date can change. Uh, it could be sooner. It could be a little bit later. And that's why, you know, kind of, you know, my, my, my little dashboard of, of gauging financial concern, financial markets concerns, uh, I think is, uh, uh, helpful in assessing the amount of credit risk that is being perceived and, uh, angst in financial markets surrounding the prospects of, uh, the debt ceiling not, not being raised. There are economic costs of the debt ceiling, even uh, even though we all know it's going to get rate increase. Uh, the political and economic costs are uh, enormous. Therefore, I think uh, lawmakers know that they need to raise uh, the debt ceiling. But even the the battles, the uh, the arguments back and forth about the debt ceiling uh, discussion that you know uh, some lawmakers won't support raising it, that has uh, economic costs. Uh, you know, we're already seeing that uh, chink that normally occurs in the Treasury bill curve, and we're also seeing consumers respond. Uh, you know, they see the headlines, uh, they read it in the newspaper, they see it on TV, uh, you know, these concerns about the debt ceiling, uh, and you've seen consumer confidence respond. Now, a good chunk of this decline that you see in the blue line, which is the Consumer Confidence Index in the University of Michigan, that's COVID-related. Uh, that coincided with the recent surge in uh, daily confirmed COVID cases, uh, and that really weighed heavily on uh, measures of, of consumer uh, confidence. Uh, so far, so good on this debt ceiling fight. Uh, if you look at Google Trends uh, and uh, search intensity for government shutdown or debt ceiling, uh, it hasn't really increased significantly. Uh, but when you see these big spikes back in 2011, 2013, that was you know, roughly a week before the debt ceiling. So something to watch next week is, is this registering a consumer's mind? Are they really nervous? Uh, and sentiment, again, is fragile, uh, and it can shift very, very quickly. But, you know, as we're having our conversation today, so far, business confidence remains solid. Uh, consumer confidence, you've got crushed by the recent wave of, of COVID-19, uh, but it's shown signs of stabilizing, and it doesn't seem like the debt ceiling is having an enormous effect yet on the collective psyche. Uh, where it is having some effect is in financial markets. Uh, investors have taken notice. Uh, and what I'll show you here is the uh, 
learning from past experiences, uh, here's the uh, one-year EDF leading up to, uh, or uh, in years that we had these nasty debt ceiling flights in 2011 uh, and 2013. Uh, and you can see these little uh, increases in the blue line right around September that in uh, 2011. Uh, even though we had a very uh, uh, significant debt ceiling fight in 2013, there wasn't a lot of indication uh, and, of course, this is the monthly average, so you know, if you look at the daily, you'll see some you know, uh, volatility in the, in the series. Uh, uh, 2013's episode was, was worse than uh, 2011 because it also coincided with uh, a government shutdown. And that was the concern this time around, is that we could have a repeat of that, you know, a uh, government shutdown that overlaps with a debt ceiling fight. Fortunately, uh, lawmakers kicked the can down the road. They didn't kick it too far. Uh, they have until December 3rd, I believe, to uh, pass uh, budget res resolution or funds the government for the next fiscal year, or there will be a partial government shutdown. Uh, but when you look at uh, the EDF around instances of you know, government shutdowns with a debt ceiling, government shutdowns without a debt ceiling, uh, there's not an enormous amount of angst uh, or uh, increase in the EDF. Uh, and that's a good leading indicator or uh, signal that you know, markets view these battles as temporary, uh, that they're going to get resolved, uh, and there's no long-term damage to either uh, financial markets or the economy from uh, a partial government shutdown or uh, a nasty death ceiling fight. Because, again, getting back to the movie analogy, we've all seen the movie before, we know how it ends, uh, but, you know, if there's any prospect that the ending of this movie is different, you will start to see an immediate response in uh, our measures of uh, our, our EDS measures, uh, the Treasury bill curve, consumer confidence, business confidence, and uh, investor sentiment. Uh, it would be you know, a sudden moment. Uh, you know, it could be similar to what you saw around TARP, uh, the Trouble Asset Release Program. If everyone recalls, uh, you know, we're watching TV when they're voting. Uh, lawmakers are voting whether or not to pass the initial version of TARP. They turned it down, and uh, all hell broke, broke loose. The stock market plunged. Uh, you know, you got a sudden tightening financial market condition. Uh, but that gave lawmakers their aha moment, and they quickly reversed course and passed TARP. Uh, we don't want to do that with the debt ceiling because the economic cost would be much more uh, significant. Uh, you could have a, a TARP-like moment if uh, lawmakers uh, – temporarily breach the debt ceiling for, you know, a day or two, uh, and that would still have some economic costs. You see it reflected in the EDS and the high yield corporate bond spreads, and, uh, uh, you know, there's nowhere to hide really on the credit uh, ladder. Uh, there will be a response uh, throughout uh, the, the corporate credit ladder. So the things looking at, uh, why I don't anticipate, you know, a enormous increase this time around in either the EDS or the high yield bond spreads, all based on past experience, we seem to digest them fairly well. Uh, 2011, you see the high yield corporate bond spread begin to increase, but all that increase was after the debt ceiling. That's nothing debt ceiling related. Uh, that was more attributed to the slowing in the European economy, concerns about uh, stopping debt at that time around. Uh, leading up to the debt ceiling, there was a very, very muted response, uh, and I think that's and what most, the most likely scenario, our baseline forecast, is that uh, you don't see a lot of movement in the EDF or a high yield corporate bond spread. Uh, but this, these past experiences, uh, it doesn't 
being there, so definitely be repeated. You know, history doesn't always repeat itself. Uh, and if you do want, uh, begin to see indications that the one-year uh, EDS is starting to move, uh, that would raise a red flag. Uh, that's a, uh, an early warning that uh, this time may not be different and that we could have some more stress in uh, the corporate credit markets, in financial markets, and the bond markets than we've had in past experiences uh, with the debt ceiling. One area that you're seeing uh, a response is in the forward treasury bill yield. Uh, again, I'm comparing 2011 to 2013. Uh, so, so far, the increase would be less than what we saw in either 2011 or 2013. And why the response in uh, the treasury, uh, the forward treasury uh, yield in 2013 is much more significant than what we saw in 2011 is that in 2013 there was uh, to, the government shutdown occurred before the debt ceiling. So you already had, you know, markets beginning to price in, uh, a government shutdown, uh, on top of, uh, or coinciding with a debt ceiling, uh, uh, increase that's needed. So you saw a much earlier response where the more typical response would be in 2011, you know, three days out, you start to see a, a big increase in, uh, investment increase in, uh, the forward treasury bill yield. Uh, currently, uh, if you look at the uh, Treasury bill maturing right around the drop dead date, uh, October 16th, you know, uh, 17th, 18th, uh, that's risen, and it's higher than uh, bills that are maturing either before uh, the debt ceiling expiration or shortly after. Uh, and that normal kink in the Treasury bill curve is something that we would expect. Uh, you know, there's a little angst in, in the bond market, not a ton. Uh, about the, the debt ceiling. So that is something we're keeping a close eye on. So, you know, you know as we draw closer, you know, my checklist is, you know, watch the EDF, uh, watch uh, the, uh, the Treasury bill curve, uh, the volatility in the VIX, the stock market, investor sentiment, uh, and also consumer sentiment because you know, there's not just a financial uh, cost of, uh, of this bank around the debt ceiling. Uh, consumers may begin to respond because, again, sentiment is fragile. The collective psyche typically is really, really important around turning points. Uh, and uh, if it begins to be frayed because of the debt ceiling, then you know, that would uh, have economic uh, implications. All right, so the next few slides uh, are going to be much, I'm not trying to scare everyone, but you know, we're going to hope for the best uh, and forecast for the worst. Uh, so one scenario that we ran through our U.S. macro model uh, is one where we have a uh, – the government uh, fails to raise the debt ceiling, and uh, it's not just a temporary one. You know, I think there was one that occurred for a day back in the 1970s. It is more an extended one uh, that lasts into November, so a little bit more uh, – right around the month, uh, the Treasury uh, debt ceiling is raised. Uh, so we ran that scenario through our macro model, and an extended breach of the debt ceiling would cause a recession very similar to the Great Recession. So that's roughly a 4% peak to trough decline in GDP, a four, uh, 6 million increase in the number of people unemployed, an unemployment rate near 9%, uh, you know, a significant drop in uh, equity prices. Uh, and so we ran that through, uh, and I wanted to see what that would imply for uh, the EDF and the uh, high-yield corporate bond spend. Uh, we don't forecast the uh, one-year EDF, uh, but we'll come back to that in a second. 
Uh, the green line is the Armageddon scenario. So again, that's that extended breach of the debt ceiling, uh, and you see instantly there's uh, a significant widening in the high-yield corporate bond spread. But that would slam the brakes on uh, corporate bond issuance. Uh, that would you know, instantly start raising uh, credit concerns. And typically when uh, high-yield corporate bond spread seems to increase, then that kind of foreshadows you know, more trouble ahead in, in, in the corporate bond market and uh, increase uh, you know, concerns about uh, credit risk. Uh, the blue line, what our baseline forecast is, and that's the most likely scenario. So the Armageddon scenario, I mean, that's out on the tail. That's you know, something that you know, we got to think about, but it's not the most likely scenario. The most likely scenario is the blue line. But if we do breach the debt ceiling, uh, this is the most uh, this is what the response in the high yield uh, corporate bond market would be. And based on its relationship with the one year uh, the EDF, US EDF. You would see the, uh, the U.S. EDF almost triple what it is today. So right now, you know, it's, it's, it's low, uh, but uh, if we have a breach of the debt ceiling, it would almost uh, triple. So that's kind of putting everything into perspective. And, again, we'd like to see the, the EDF increase, you know, a little bit before the high-yield corporate bond spread would begin to raise the red flags or send, sound the alarms. And then uh, I'll wrap up with this slide. Uh, even though the last one focused on, you know, the high-yield corporate bond market, uh, there's nowhere to hide if we breach the debt ceiling for an extended period of time. Uh, and this one is showing you the Moody's Intermediate Bond Yield Average. This is all investment grade. Uh, so you would see yields start to really increase uh, if we breach the debt, breach the debt ceiling. Let me say, sorry, my, my dog's going crazy. Right, so again, just to, to reiterate that, you know, and this is what I promised you, I'd end on a good note. Uh, even though there's potential for some angst and, uh, you know, there could be some bumps along the road uh, in financial markets over the next few weeks, Underlying economic conditions, financial market conditions uh, are all still very favorable. Um, you know, we'll start to see default rates begin to decide. Uh One year, you, know, you start to see some uh, increases in, in EDS among industries that are uh, very sensitive to interest rates. But when you take a step back, conditions are still going to remain very strong. We're in the early stages of what should be a long economic expansion, uh, and I know we talked about some dark scenarios. They're very unlikely. They're on the, the you know the far tail of the distribution of possible outcomes. Uh, our working assumption is that this is the same movie. You know we know how it's going to end in the eleventh hour. We'll raise the debt ceiling uh, and we'll avoid uh, having to uh, go down this very very dark path, which I think lawmakers are very aware exists that the economic costs of not raising the debt ceiling are enormous and the political costs are enormous. Uh, and that's the most likely uh, cattle for uh, you know, justifying them raising uh, raising the debt ceiling. So uh, we're past the best times, but the next few years are still going to be very good times for uh, 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 corporates. Uh, the, uh, the amount of liquidity in financial markets is, is a boatload. Uh, leverage is a concern. Uh, but we're still going to be in a very low interest rate environment for the next couple of years. Uh, and unless interest rates adjust abruptly, 
there's not a lot of concern that you know, the, uh, the amount of corporate debt that has uh, increased recently is going to have any significant impact on uh, EDS or broader financial market conditions and, by extension, uh, the U.S. economy. So, with that, uh, I'd be more than happy to answer any of your questions. Great. Thanks, Ryan. We've had a couple of questions come in already, but um, please feel free to submit uh, more through the Q&A tool. Uh, let's jump in. Okay, Ryan, so do any of your scenarios and outlooks for debt and race take a view of crowding out from government spending? Uh, it does. So the, the model is designed in a way that it will factor in uh, crowding out from, uh, you know, expansion of uh, fiscal stimulus. So, uh, our baseline forecast assumes roughly two and a half, three trillion dollars in additional uh, government spending, and that's broken up between infrastructure spending and then uh, the uh, Biden's Build Back Better agenda. Uh, so we added all up to be about two and a half, three trillion. Uh, and we likely might scale that back a little bit, just given what's going on in, in DC and. Uh, the support, uh, where the support lies for a bill is likely, you know, somewhere in between one and a half and three and a half trillion, so it may just split the difference. Uh, but when we run that through our macro model, it does factor in, you know, what the impact on, uh, uh crowding out of private sector investment, what the impact on interest rates is going to be. Uh, so our models do, uh, do capture that. So the, the baseline forecast that I, I showed you, the blue lines in each of the last two slides, does incorporate uh, any adverse uh, effects of the uh, significant increase in fiscal spending that is coming. Here's one about uh, inflation. So I read that indicators like inflation are not as transitory as initially thought. Do you see data supporting that inflation is now more embedded than three or six months ago? Inflation is a hot topic, uh, and it's, it's on everyone's mind. Uh, I'm still of the view that it's transitory, and let me lay out why. Uh, if you look at the breadth of changes in consumer prices and producer prices, uh, it's fairly narrow, and it's isolated to uh, areas that are tied to the reopening of the economy, which include uh, lodging away from home, so hotels, motels, uh, rental cars, uh, uh, you know, these areas that you know, restaurants, these are areas that got uh, hit very hard by the pandemic, you know, where they shut down the economy. And now that, you know, we're in the midst, the, the later stages of the reopening of the economy, uh, you're seeing price pressures there, uh, you know, really emerge. But over the last few months, they're starting to fade. Uh, the other area which has contributed the most to the acceleration in consumer prices uh, recently uh, are new and used car prices, and this is tied back to uh, the global semiconductor shortage. And this is where we could see you know, uh, some lingering in uh, inflationary pressures uh, because global supply chains are still very, very disrupted. Uh, recently, we created uh, a global supply chain uh, stress index for the U.S., uh, and it basically takes into consideration all uh, measures of, of supply chain uh, stress, so supplier delivery times, uh, container traffic, uh, cost of shipping. 
Uh, and we just combine them, create an index, and it's showing no signs of easing. It's still extremely elevated. Uh, and that kind of lends, uh, supports the idea that this transitory inflation could persist a little bit longer, but in the end, you know, as long as inflation gets back to the Fed's 2% objective, which likely will occur second half of next year, I think we'll look back and economists will judge this period as inflation, uh, a transitory uh, theory of inflation. Uh, the key is really what I'm paying attention to are uh, nominal wage growth, uh, which is solid, but it's not strong enough to set into motion a wage price spiral, uh, which would be a necessary condition to uh, create inflation that is you know, uh, sustained around 4 or 5%. That's, un- that's unlikely going to occur. And I'm also watching market-based measures of inflation expectations. So inflation swaps five-year, five-year forward. Uh, because as long as inflation expectations remain anchored, uh, it's unlikely that uh, this you know, transitory period of inflation turns into anything worse. Uh, if you go back to the 1970s, in, uh, early 1980s, when we had that period of stagflation, which is high unemployment, high inflation, uh, the reason that that occurs if the Fed ignored inflation expectations. It became disanchored uh, or unanchored, and uh, that's kind of set in this wage price spiral uh, uh, that, uh, that occurred that drove inflation to uh, rates that we haven't seen in, in some time. So uh, I know it's uncomfortable now. Uh, it's inflation's cutting into people's um, spending power, uh, but with corporate profit margins wide, meaning that they can absorb some of these higher input costs. Inflation expectations anchored. Uh, nominal wage growth decent, but not you know, robust. Uh, and the fading effect of the reopening of the economy, along with uh, hopefully some improvement in supply chains. And our baseline forecast is that you know, the supply chain issues aren't completely resolved until you know, at the earliest mid-next year. So you know, we could see some inflationary pressures linger into next year. Uh, but all told, we'll start to see more modest rates of inflation over the next uh, six to nine months. What factors does the EDS include to make a forecast, and how accurate is it? So we'll directly forecast, uh, and this is for the economic team, we don't forecast the, the EDS. Uh, how I uh, that um, that chart that shows you the relationship between the high yield corporate bond spread and the EDF, uh, you can use that as uh, to create uh, a regression or a, a forecast of the EDF. So there is a very uh, strong correlation uh, and a causal relationship between the two, and you can just back out a forecast of the EDF using the, the high yield corporate bond spread. It's not perfect, uh, but the relationship is, is is strong enough where you know, it gives you a you know, good idea. You know, probably with, you know, not enormous confidence interval around uh, projections for the one-year EDF. Are Delta and COVID still uh, important for the economic outlook? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, the economy, I mean, even financial markets, uh, both are tied to the hit with uh, COVID. You, you saw with the, the Delta variant, the uh, wave of recent confirmed cases, uh, that really fit into the economy much more than we had anticipated, uh, and as a result, we reduced our GDP growth forecast uh, for this year from 6.5% to 6%, and most of that 
is attributed to uh, this wave of, of COVID-19. Uh, it had an impact on the job market, uh, impact to consumer spending, shifted spending back towards goods, away from services, uh, reduced travel, a lot of the very high-frequency data that, you know, pay attention to Google mobility, number of people passing through TSA checkpoints, uh, all deteriorated, you know, uh, you know, in the midst of this wave of COVID-19. Uh, so, unfortunately, until we're on the other side of the pandemic, uh, you know, the economy's near-term prospects are still uh, tightly uh, t- tied to the hip with the, with the pandemic. Okay, I think we'll end on, on this question. Do you think there will be a trillion-dollar coin? This is a great question to end on. Uh, so I, I had to say a little bit because if we get to the 11th hour and there are no signs that uh, the debt ceiling is going to be raised, I think the Democrats and the Republicans will, uh, if they're going back and forth, no one's going to bend. Uh, I think the Democrats know the economic and political costs of not raising the debt ceiling, and that's when they would go and uh, pull a Hail Mary and print the trillion-dollar coin. Now, I don't know whose face they would put on it. Uh, you know, I think that's up for debate, but this platinum coin, this trillion-dollar coin, uh, would be the uh, last-ditch effort to avoid you know, this cataclysmic event of not raising the debt ceiling. I don't think we'll get there. I think you know, uh, you know, we'll, they'll raise the debt ceiling through you know, their normal negotiations. Comes down to the last minute, but you know uh, why that Armageddon scenario is so far out on the tail end of the distribution is that there is that you know, kind of uh, hail mary of uh, printing the, di- uh, the trillion dollar coin just in case that debt ceiling is uh, not raised. I'd rather have them print the trillion dollar coin than breach. The death note.